I uh, think it's become apparent where no one was going to think for a moment that I was going to summarize my past two months in one sermon. For those of you who don't know, I've recently returned from a two-month sabbatical, spending most of that time in Berlin, where I was teaching in a rabbinical seminary to eager rabbis-to-be. Now, I had no plans to summarize all those experiences at one time because, first of all, I don't think that I could, even if I wanted to, and second, because summarizing the entire two months at one moment, in one sermon, professionally would be bad practice. Because if you have that much material, you use it over time, and you save some of it. And this is a pitch for membership, by the way. Come back, you'll hear more about it. But one of the shaping experiences, if you're a congregational rabbi, is that whenever you have an experience, you filter it. You can be traveling, seeing things, and you immediately ask yourself, how do I use this in a sermon? Now, most people just look and enjoy the moment. Maybe they'll post a selfie at the Eiffel Tower. Maybe they'll tell a friend, a spouse, a child, or a cousin about how beautiful the tower looked when it was, when it was lit up at night. But a rabbi looks at it and says, what does it mean? So you go around the world like this, with eyes that ask, what can I learn from this? And maybe even more importantly, what can others learn from this as well? In many ways, it means that you're never off. And in other ways, it means that you hold on to experiences and memories in ways that most people never do. It reminds me often of the words of the theologian Heschel, who once said, Speaking to a frustrated student, don't ask how many times you have read the words, but ask how many of the words have gone through you. Anyways, on the flight to Europe, I watched Quentin Tarantino's new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. For those of you who know, know Tarantino's style, that all of his movies have in common a deep thread of hard-to-watch explicit violence that explodes on the stream. One moment there is pastoral quietness, normal people having normal dialogue, and the next moment it transforms into absolute chaos. And not long after seeing the movie, I searched out an interview with him where he was asked precisely about that. He was asked about the use of violence in his films. He was asked, why does it play out that way in your movies? And he said that because today in our lives, that violence is almost always a surprise. He said that when people ask him, why all of a sudden did you take a scene into this and that, and all of a sudden turned it into violence, and he said that's because what happens in life, there is no soundtrack or no screen script for life. What happens is that you're sitting in a restaurant and someone slaps another person in the face. You're walking down the street and all of a sudden you hear screaming and the sounds of people fighting. Tarantino is right because violence today is almost always a surprise. We don't expect violence. Our collective expectation is that you will walk outside of your home, you'll go drive your car, you'll go do your shopping, you'll then come home and lock your door without ever once believing that violence will come your way. Because statistically, the numbers prove it out, by the way, the chances of something violent, terribly violent, occurring in your life 
is so small, it's infinitesimally small. In Ontario, the chance of you being murdered is less than 0.0001128%. I can't even record that number. That's how small it is. Now, in Steven Pinker's book, Our Better Angels, he writes that if you and I lived in the Middle Ages, our chance of a violent death would be greater than 25%. Meaning that one out of every four people during the Middle Ages met their end, not through natural means, but through violence. And he gleaned this information both from death and court records. And this is not the kind of the world that we, or thankfully our children, live in. But over these past months, my wife Lisa and I, as I'm sure many of you in your lives have, walked the streets of a foreign city. We walked both in the day and the night. We walked in neighborhoods we didn't know, and I took subways and trains at all hours of the day. We walked through dark streets and poorly lit parks, and seldom, with no more than even just a hint of worry, did I ever say to myself, you know what, Aaron, maybe this isn't the best place to be right now. Or how do I know that this isn't a place that the locals know not to go through? I never thought about it, not even once. But spending time in Germany, particularly Berlin, and more generally in Europe, you cannot help but be reminded of the kind of world that we live in today is so different from what used to be. And really not all that different from very long ago. In just the past 50 years, at the beginning of the past century, nearly 10% of the world's population died in two world wars. Put that in perspective, that's the equivalent of an event that would claim 750 million lives today. And on a smaller, more personal and profound level, as I walked the streets of Berlin, I found myself doing something that in most European cities you never do. In most European cities, the habit is always to walk looking up. After all, you want to see the architecture and the sites that show the many centuries of literature and music and thought and politics that created the world that we live in. You pass by buildings that say, Kafka lived here. Or Mozart played the Requiem for the first time here. Or Paul Ehrlich, the man who discovered chemotherapy. This is where he worked. But in Berlin, it's all different. In Berlin, I found myself walking with my head down, scanning the sidewalks for the Stolperstein, the small bronze plaques that are embedded into the sidewalks that rise just above grade. On them, they mark the names of the Jews who lived in front of those homes that you walk by, their dates of birth and of death, the places where they met their final fate. God forbid, I whispered to myself, should I pass a spot and not know what had been lost there? In front of one, the home of the influential artist Max Lieberman, I suddenly remembered his story. Lieberman couldn't imagine that the 2,000-year history of Jews in Germany could possibly come to an end. He politely refused the offer of Mayor Diesengoff then the mayor of Tel Aviv, to come live there. It'll all work out, he said. 
And there reading the bronze plaque in front of his home tells us how tragically wrong he was. How in the briefest of moments it all came to an end. Despite what sensationalizes as news these days, let us make no mistake. We live in a remarkably peaceful time. One so counter to the nature of humans who have been wired to think of themselves first. To take what they need before thinking of others. And the story of the Jews being enslaved in Egypt, as we read this morning, is a story of humans taking whatever they want, whatever the cost, without regard for the price that others will suffer for it. And our question for this morning is this. We know how this story ends. Egypt, at the end of the story, is laid into utter ruin. It is devastated beyond belief. But why is it then that we talk and repeat the story over and over again? Every year we sit at our table tables. Every Shabbat, in each of our prayers, we recall the moment of our exodus from Egypt and Egypt's destruction. If it was over, why do we keep talking about it? We'll discover the answer. But first, let us pray and hear the music of our tradition. I had uh, left you with a question, and that is the question of what is perhaps one of the most recurrent, profound, and well-known ideas that wind its way through Judaism. That is the repeating over and over again of what took place and happened to Egypt. The fact of the matter is, when you think about it, the Israelites, according to the biblical record, they were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years baking bricks and building palaces and pyramids. What happened all of a sudden that it had to come to an end? So the ancient rabbis tell us that this was the beginning of the end. This story. Pharaoh, we are told, begins having nightmares. The nightmares, he approaches his dream interpreters and they tell him that his dreams are telling him that a person will be born, a man will be born to the Israelites who will lead them out of Egypt and will destroy Egypt in its wake. At that moment, Pharaoh decides, as Stalin said, thousands of years later, you get rid of the man, you get rid of the problem. He figured we're going to throw all the Jewish babies into the Nile because if the person isn't alive, they can't carry out what's going to happen. And to be extra safe and sure, tradition says he not only threw, ordered the Jewish boys, baby boys to be thrown into the Nile, but the infant girls too. It was at that moment the ancient rabbis teach that when children became the victims, that God said, must speak enough. It's ending. In Egypt was the story of stepping on, destroying whatever it was needed in order to assure that people would get what they felt they deserved, the chosen people of society. I didn't realize how true, in fact, this idea was. Until this past December, I was in Paris. Paris is a beautiful city. But if you're Jewish... There's one place in particular you must go to the next time you go to Paris. In the beautiful scenic area of Montmartre, 
Yes, you walk past uh, Elmer's famous, uh, the man who walks through the wall. And you stroll through the idyllic streets. And you see the picturesque vistas that show you the hills of Montmartre and the incredible views of Paris itself. You'll ascend to the heights to go see Sacre Coeur. You'll do all of that. But on your way out of Montmartre, you will visit the ancient cemetery there. And tucked in a corner is the Jewish section. There are graves there that date back hundreds of years. And as I walked with my wife, we looked at the names and the dates of birth and the dates of passing. And I always try to imagine, as I'm sure you do, that the lives that these people led. I walked by the grave and stone of Emile Zola. He was a journalist and writer who publicized and defended Alfred Dreyfus during his trial. And then I came to the gravestone of Pinchas and Chaya Shever. It gave the date of their births and the date of their deaths. And beneath all that information, it said, in memory of Yanko, Rivka, Chaya, and Mala Shever, who were deported by the Nazis and as children were killed in 1942. And then beneath it wrote, Que vous étiez juif, because you were Jews. Why do we speak of, repeat over and over again the story of Egypt? Because if history has taught us everything, even in moments of quietude and peace, is that in every generation there threatens another Egypt. And if we are to be redeemed, we must protect and defend the tender and the weak and the young. Shabbat Shalom.